Uh, Josh Prather is also a part of the rich history of this church. You have been here uh, since the Praxis days, right? That's right, yeah. So I first transitioned. Was anyone here when Tyler Johnson was interim pastor? Anybody remember those days? Let's see a few yeah. scattered hands out there. Yeah, so I was actually going back and forth with Stephanie Shoemate about who's been here the longest. And she said that I won out, but right when on staff. So right when Tyler Johnson transitioned, Justin Praxis was, uh, or Justin, <laughs> Justin Praxis. Justin, Justin Praxis, Anderson. yeah, sure. Yeah, Justin Praxis. Justin Anderson was lead practice. <laughs> Lead pastor. I'm Praxis so glad he's Church. preaching today because it's going to yeah. be really good. It's going to be a good one. <laughs> get, get ready. Uh, yeah, I, well, all right, just go on. Let's move all on. All right, so Justin Anderson left. <laughs> Give up. Tyler was around. And Tyler the, was the around. Interim, and then found I found Frank. Nope. Yeah, like seven and a half years ago. Yeah, that's right. So yes. you were here even before all that. Yeah. The transition to me happened. Uh, you've been serving as an elder here for how long? Oh, uh, gosh, how long? How long has it been? Five years. Maybe five years? Yeah, five yeah. years. Uh, and you work for Redemption Central. You actually don't work for Redemption Arcadia. You've been you've chosen this to be your family's place to worship, and um, you've been serving as an elder now for five years. But you actually work for Redemption Central. So tell us a little bit more about that again. Yeah. So uh, those of you that don't know, I'm pastor of Community and Global Initiatives. So I work centrally with Redemption Church, and I try to help each one of our congregations, primarily through leaders. Um, love their neighbors, so specifically those that are picked last in society, the lost of society, or the least of these in society. So how we make disciples who think about the world and love their neighbor. So the reason I'm up here is that for about the last two years, um, Josh and Rachel and his family have been praying, uh, been talking to me, talking to other leaders at Redemption, not just here, but also in uh, all of Redemption. And um, been moving towards thinking that it might be time to move to a different congregation, and that would be Alhambra. And eventually you came to that conclusion, and with the support of people, and you brought it to the elders, and the elders said, yeah, sounds like this would be a great move for you and your family during this season of life. So you are heading to Alhambra to worship, but you're not leaving Redemption Church, right? That's correct, yeah. So I'll still be with Redemption Church. I'll work centrally. I'll still work with a lot of the leaders here, the elders and the pastors here. But our family will start worshiping at Redemption Alhambra. And you're not going to be an elder there yet. No. No. Yet. So there's no plan for leadership or being an elder. And you're there. not on their preaching calendar. No. But you're remaining on our preaching calendar. <laughs> That's right. So you'll see me again in October. So, I'll be yeah. back here at Redemption so, Arcadia. So he's still going to be somebody you're going to see um, up here as well. So a couple quick questions, then I want to invite people to come up and pray. If you're a deacon, an elder, or on staff, and you're in here right now, I'm going to eventually ask you to come up and pray with me as we pray for uh, Josh. But um, let me just say, how have you seen, you've been around here for nine years. How long, how have you seen God work at Redemption Arcadia? Yeah, there's a few ways that uh, immediately came to mind when Frank and I were discussing this. One is marketplace leaders. Um, I think Redemption Arcadia has and will continue to have a huge impact and influence on marketplace leaders. I've just met Steve Wheeler at the Henry, if you know this restaurant, right down the way. And Aaron Klusman, who attends here, leads a group called the Camelback Society that's connected to Marketplace One downtown. Steve was at the table with these guys. And it's just incredible to see men and women that are thinking about gospel in the marketplace. So that's one thing that I think is incredible. One is biblical knowledge. We're starting to live in a biblically illiterate culture. And I was going back and forth with Frank about whether or not he knew more of the Bible than any one pastor in Redemption Church. I believe he does. He was humble enough to think he does not. 
But if you don't know this, Frank has incredible biblical knowledge that he gives you. The classes that he teaches are like seminary-grade classes on biblical understanding. So seeing people formed through the Bible is absolutely incredible. And then I love the generations that we've seen at Redemption Arcadia. So uh, not many churches and not many pastors can actually stretch the generation gap. It's usually, what, 10 to 15 years on either, on either so side you, of the lead pastor. Yeah, so the lead pastor, usually you have 10 to 15 years of people that are come to your church, but you do not see that here. So you see uh, people, you see senior citizens, elderly, all the way down to young couples, all the way down to college students, which I think is uh, absolutely incredible to see that. Okay, and how would you like, thank you, by the way, I appreciate that. I still think it's Luke Simmons. But, um, how do you see uh, God, how do you want to see God working at Alhambra going over there? Yeah, with this move, I just hope our family is a blessing to Redemption Alhambra. That's my hope and a blessing to that neighborhood. So that's one. Um, and then two, I just want to see Alhambra, like I hope for Redemption Arcadia, to continue to be a blessing where God has them. So that neighborhood is uh, different demographically, but no difference in need. You know, so just as much need here as there is there, uh, so that Alhambra would continue to be faithful uh, to what God's called them to do. That's awesome. Okay, so if you are uh, elder, staff, deacon, or your last name is Prather, would you please uh, come up here? y'all pray with us? Uh, Lord God, we are grateful for how you call and equip your people. We've said that many times, and uh, uh, we are laying our hands on one now that, that exemplifies that, that manifests that, that is a great illustration and example of that, how you've called and equipped uh, Josh. Uh, we've been blessed for many years to have him uh, routinely here, and now we just send him uh, hoping praying that you continue to just fill him with your Holy Spirit, uh, with, with your desire uh, to have a broken heart for people that are, uh, that are in trouble, uh, that are the least, the last, and the lost, uh, people who need the gospel. So we pray that you would fill him that way, continue to fill him that way. Uh, God, let us celebrate the time that we've had with him. Uh, we'll be mourning him not being here on a regular basis, but also um, let's just pray for he and Rachel and Zamora as they go, uh, that their life would be abundant uh, and, that, and that the gospel would continue to not only follow them, but they would also be purveyors of the gospel. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You can thank Josh thank as he gets ready to preach. Thanks. <clears throat> All right. Made it through that. Um, Philippians 1, 1 through 18 is going to be our text. Let me go through my outline, uh, and then I'll pray, and we'll jump into it, and hopefully this ear mic stays with me. Uh, I'm going to start with the biblical story. If uh, you've been here and you've heard me preach a few times, this outline is getting familiar to you. I'm going to go through an introduction to Philippians, just as a kind of heads up. I'm not going to nearly be able to get to all you could get through in the text, because I'm going to give you an introduction to Philippians to kind of set the stage for the book as Frank and Cody continue that forward, and then get into the text, but I'll do the best I can, and then we'll get into Philippians 1, verses 1 through 18. Um, and then, as always, I think you're trying to search for the gospel within the text and where Jesus comes to life, so from that, we'll move to the gospel. 
And then we'll talk through how to love our neighbor and what God calls us to in loving our neighbor. Um, and then in loving your neighbor, especially what we'll find out in the book of Philippians, that loving your neighbor is hard work and it is not easy. And suffering and sacrifice are a part of that. So what is the future hope? What's the future joy that we have in front of us? And that's where I'll end. Let me pray and then we'll get into it. God, you've been uh, good to this church. God, you've been good to me and you've been good to my family. You'd be good to all of us. God, where would we be without Jesus? God, I give you my words now. I give you my heart. I give you my mind. They belong to you. It's not my words, but it's your words. God, so I pray in the name of Jesus that you would fill me with your spirit, anoint me now to proclaim the gospel, teach your word, to build people up and equip us to be your faithful witnesses in this world. In the name of Jesus, amen. So going back in the biblical story, we start with Adam and Eve, and we see that Adam and Eve were created by God to be representatives. So God gives him his image, gives them his image, and he calls them first and foremost to reflect that image back to him. God wants to look at his people, and he wants to see his image, and then as they're called to be fruitful and multiply, what he's hoping to see is that image bearers are going to be reflecting that back to one another, but as we know in Genesis 3, if you know the biblical story, that that image bearing and that connection reflecting back and forth starts to break and it starts to shatter so we're waiting for this true representative to come someone that will actually be the fullness of humanity and represent God's goodness to the world and we find that in the person of Jesus but it doesn't end with Jesus because it actually moves to his church and why I'm giving you this background is because it leads to the church of Philippi and Paul planning the church because when we actually give our lives to Jesus, we become crucified with Christ. It's no longer us who live, but Christ lives in us. And the life that we live in the flesh, we live by faith in Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. This is supposed to radiate from us. And that's why Paul wants to plant the church. Paul wants to plant these colonies of believers who are faithful to Jesus because they're in the midst of a world that only wants to reflect themselves. So when Paul feels the grace of Jesus, he starts to try to plant churches around the world that desperately need this colony, this kingdom, this other citizenship of people that we call the church that sits here right now so that they can actually be the representatives and the faithful witnesses in their community. But as Frank always says, and we'll learn in the book of uh, Philippians, that call is not always easy and it's not always cupcakes and muffins. Sometimes it gets hard, right? So let me jump into an introduction for the book of Philippians. If you're a note taker, this is going to be a, a great time to take some notes. I'm going to stay pretty close to my notes here, and then you could refer back to those as we continue the series. I'll start with Philippi, and what do we know about Philippi? Philippi is a Roman colony. Uh, it's filled with a few elite retired soldiers, and most of the people in Philippi are living in poverty. Uh, estimated 50% of the population are actually slaves. It was a, patriot, a patriotic area that was proud of bringing Roman citizenship to the rest of the world. So retired soldiers, they couldn't all go into the center of Rome, so they would start these colonies around the world to take Roman civilization. They give them elite status around the world. And it was a community of diverse backgrounds. So as I said before, you have the Roman elites and the poor and the military, all these people coming together, and the church was no different. So the church is called to be one with all these diverse backgrounds, just like in Philippi, to come together and to be faithful to one another and to love one another. So that's a little bit about Philippi. And then how did the church start? Well, that story comes from Acts 16, 6 through 40. I'm not going to read that whole thing, 
but I'll just try to summarize it for you. Paul has a vision of a man in Macedonia, and Paul believes that this vision is calling him to go to Macedonia and share the gospel. So he sets sail. He finds himself in Philippi sharing the good news. He's down by the river, and he's sharing the good news with a group of women down by the river. And a woman named Lydia hears the good news, and it says in the text, this is what's beautiful, it says in the text that God opened her heart to receive the gospel. So God opens her heart. She receives the gospel, but not just her, her household. Paul winds up in Philippi in prison. Um, and as was Paul's custom, he's worshiping Jesus one night. He's crying out to God. There's an earthquake. The chains fall off Paul. The doors open up. And the Philippian jailer believes that he needs to kill himself because everybody has escaped. He's going to be blamed for this. He might as well take his own life. But he hears Paul say, no, don't kill yourself. We're all still here. And this leads the Philippian jailer to give his life to Jesus, and not just him, but him and his household. And that gives birth to the Philippian church. And one of the reasons that Paul, you're going to find, loves this church so much is because this was his first church. So this church is very near and dear to Paul's heart. That's a little bit about Philippi. So let's talk about the letter. Paul's letter to the Philippians. How is it written? It's a series of short, reflective essays and they all come back to one central focus, and that's the messianic poem in chapter 2. This beautiful vision of Jesus that we'll get into just, uh, in just a little bit. Adam in Genesis 3 tries to have equality with God, but what we see in Jesus is Jesus considers equality with God not something to exploit. That's N.T. Wright's translation. I love that. Not something to exploit, but Jesus makes himself nothing so different than Adam and Eve. And this is the center point in chapter 2. And all these vignettes and all these essays are pointing us back to chapter 2. It's a book of joy and invitation to follow Jesus in the way of service. Where is it written? It's written from prison. Paul is in pr prison and he's awaiting his sentence. And at this time, he's actually suspecting death. And so, you know, prison at this point in time is very different than prison now. Prison... They didn't provide for you. There was no luxuries of prison. So you, had, you were dependent upon a community or on someone else to provide for you. And that's what the Philippian church did for Paul. They were providing for him. So it's written from prison. And why is it written? Uh, so as I just said, first and foremost, practically speaking, it's a thank you letter. Paul is writing to the church in Philippi and he's saying, thank you. Thank you for supporting me. Thank you for being with me in this. Um, it's kind of a missionary support letter in some ways. Paul writing to say thank you for all the service that you've given and for all the provision. And second, Paul loves this church, as I already said before. This is his first church. So Paul has a connection to this church, an affinity for this church. He loves this church. And third, it's an invitation. It's an invitation for all of us, and we'll get to that, but an invitation to joy and suffering in following the way of Jesus. Paul writes to tell the church to submit their lives to Christ and not to Caesar. In the midst of Roman patriotism, they are to declare Jesus is Lord and not Caesar as Lord. Paul saw his whole life as a reenactment of the gospel story, which is why he takes everything back to this messianic poem in chapter 2 that talks about the life of Jesus. Everything comes back to that because Paul sees his own life as a reenactment of this gospel story. Now to Philippians. Philippians 1, verses 1 through 18. If you have a Bible, it's a great time to open it on your phone and follow along with me. 
I said before it was going to be way too much to discuss. I'm going to do the best I can as I work my way through. I'm going to go verse by verse and talk through what each one has to say to us. Verse 1, as we heard the reader read, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What stands out in this opening, that Paul a lot of times will open his letter with apostolic authority, for good reason. He was one of the few apostles that Jesus actually revealed himself to. He was with Jesus, saw Jesus, and a lot of churches that Paul is writing to have challenges that he's trying to address. So he needs to bring some apostolic authority so that they listen to his challenges, but not here. You see that when Paul addresses the church here, he calls himself a servant or a slave, to Christ, a bondservant to Jesus Christ, because he sees this affinity. Once again, he sees a connection with the Philippian church. And why they're a little different is because he's not writing saying that you're doing something wrong and you need to correct. He's writing saying you're going in the right direction, but we can't stop. You have to keep going. You have to keep moving forward. But he sees himself as a servant with them. And really, that one word, bondservant, sets the tone for the entire letter. If you read through the book of Philippians and you think about servant, 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 through the whole letter, you'll see that that one word that Paul uses to describe himself in the very beginning sets the stage for the whole letter. Verses 3 through 5 are thankfulness for partnership. Paul is very thankful for the partnership that he has with this church once again. Verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you're all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. now. Our deepest relationships, the deepest connections we have are partners in the gospel. Has anybody ever had someone that's been a partner in the gospel striving with you and they've walked away from the faith? They walked away from the Lord? Have you ever had that? Or they just stopped striving after Jesus? Do you feel a sense of loss? You didn't know that there was that deep connection there sometimes, that you're striving side by side in the same purpose until that person starts to drift and they start to walk away from Jesus or they completely abandon Jesus. I've had a few friends just over the course of the last few years that have walked away from Jesus and you don't know the loss until you experience the loss that we were striving side by side in partnership in advancement of the gospel and now you've wandered away, and there's a grieving, and there's a loss to that. Paul is giving his life for Jesus, and he knows that he is not alone. His joy comes from their partnership in the gospel, um, but he also has a pastoral love and concern for this church, but he sees that this is really a partnership in the gospel, striving side by side. And a lot of times we think of fellowship, and the same word, partnership, can be translated fellowship. And a lot of times, if you've been in other Christian circles, we'll talk about fellowship and we talk about it almost as an insular event that is only for Christians to partake in. But here, Paul uses the same word to talk about partnership in advancement, that the fellowship we experience with one another actually has a vision to it. It's not just for us to come together. It's not just for us to be together, although those are important things. But the fellowship we have with one another is advancing the gospel. It's moving the gospel forward. Verse 6, we see that there's an assurance of God's work that this advancement and this partnership is actually God's work in us. 
And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Isn't it great that God is faithful to finish what he started? God started it, and he's going to finish it. You know, parents know this all too well. Um, we know the smell. We're sitting in the living room, you're sitting in the chair, and your spouse is sitting across on the couch. Your two-year-old's playing in the middle of the living room, and all of a sudden you start to smell it. It's a deuce. It's a number two. It's a, poop, it's a poopy diaper. You start to smell it, and then you make eye contact with one another, and you say, okay, who's going to start this work? Who's going to bring this into completion? That's what you're questioning. Who's going to start the work? What you don't question is, are they going to finish it? <laughs> if I pick up my daughter, I take her to the back, I clean her diaper, I fix her up, and then I put her on the floor, and she comes out of the room without a diaper on, my wife's not going to go to her and say, why didn't you put a diaper on? She's going to come to me and say, why didn't you finish the work? And Jesus, this is what's so good about God, he's faithful to continue to change our diapers. He's faithful to us. We're kids that constantly need him to complete the work that he started. And he says, I started it, and I am going to be the one that completes it. And the day of Jesus Christ is this full completion that what God started at the very beginning with your salvation, God has saved you, he is saving you, and at the day of the Lord when Jesus comes again, God will save you wholly and fully. God started it. And God will complete the work. And we've already talked about this so much in Jonah, right? Jonah 2.9, we took a whole sermon just to talk about Jonah 2.9. And Cody did a phenomenal job, if you go back um, in the podcast and listen to that. Did a phenomenal job talking about this, that God saves us, God is saving us, and God will save us. Our maturity, our perfection, fully and wholly belongs to God. God will never abandon us. Isn't that good news? that God is always with you. God is always with us. He that began a good work in you promises that he's going to complete it. And honestly, this is what frees us to be thankful for others. Knowing this, now we can be free to know God's with me. If God is for me, who can be against me if God is with me? And we can rest in that, and that's what frees us up to actually be thankful and grateful for others and not always be worried about ourselves. Verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for all of you with the affection of Jesus Christ. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. We know who our true friends are when we are wounded and they come with us. When we are wounded and they stand side by side with us. You know, prison then, much like prison today, is shameful. It's a shameful thing. So for the Philippians to hang in there with Paul while he's in prison tells Paul that these are true friendships. These are true partners in the gospel. They are really walking with Paul. They're not abandoning him in his time of need. And this sort of affection can only come from Christ. Truly, when's the last time you've talked about a Christian or brother or sister's way? How I yearn for you. How I yearn. When's the last time you told someone you yearned for them? 
how I yearn for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. How do we get there? If we want to get to this yearning and affection, it can only come because we understand the affection and the yearning that God has for us, that Jesus yearns for us. He has affection for us. And when we know that as a community and we know that as a church, then it allows us to be filled up with the gospel, filled up with this affection, and it can move from us to our neighbor, from us to our neighbor. And then we go to verse 9, and Paul prepares them for gospel advancement. Verse 9, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Let's see if I can try to sum this up for us. Is that love must mature and become wise. So our love matures. The way we see, I have a vision for loving others, it matures. So we approve what is good and are blameless for him when he returns filled with righteousness that can only come from him, all to the praise and glory of Jesus. Do you recognize how central and how holistic God is to your development as a believer? That God is the one that's actually bringing about this righteousness and this blamelessness in you? And why is he bringing it about? Because Jesus is going to come again. And when Jesus comes again, he wants to see you, and he wants to see you blameless and righteous. Why? So he can be praised. So Jesus can be praised because you're righteous and you're blameless. And this isn't a, we have to be worthy when Jesus comes back so he accepts us. We have to be blameless and righteous when Jesus comes back so he accepts us. No, it's like a bride waiting for a groom. You know, I was just able to officiate a wedding a few, uh, probably like a month ago, and I loved that moment when a bride turns the corner and the groom sees her walking down. All right, isn't it an incredible moment? And the bride does not work on the dress and the hair and everything so that the husband says, okay, now I accept you. No, she works it because she wants to be beautiful for the groom. And that's why we want to be pure and blameless because we're in love with our groom. We're in love with Jesus Christ. And when he comes again, we want to stand before him pure and blameless. The only thing that truly matters is how Jesus finds us when we return. Do you believe that? That our one goal, our one aspiration is that Jesus would look at us and we would be pure and blameless for him. Why? Because we love him so much. Because we're so grateful for all that he's done for us. And we prepare for advancing the gospel, and then Paul moves to advancing the gospel. Verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served in advancing the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord because of my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. God uses everything to advance the gospel. God uses everything to advance the gospel. God uses imprisonment 
to advance the gospel. God uses your suffering and your hardships to advance the gospel. God uses your pain and your heartache to advance the gospel. God promises that he will use you to advance the gospel. That's good news for us, that no matter what happens in your life, the suffering or the pain that God brings, he promises that he's going to use it. And we see appropriate responses from both parties because Paul is unjustly imprisoned, so rightfully so, his friends want him to be released from prison, and they're worried about him, right? So they're worried about Paul, but Paul responds because he has a gospel lens. The church wants him out of prison, but Paul sees that God is using this situation, and God is using it for his glory. And there's a similar story in Genesis 37 through 46, if you're familiar with the story of Joseph. Joseph. Joseph is loved by his father and starts to get visions from God about his brothers that his brothers aren't too excited about. So his brothers sell him into slavery, and Joseph has no idea how God is using this. Joseph is now in slavery and eventually is wrongfully imprisoned, but just like Paul, God does not forget Joseph, and God uses this because the Pharaoh has a dream that no one can interpret except for Joseph, so they come to Joseph, ask him to interpret the dream. He does, and eventually Joseph works his way to where he becomes a prince and God uses it to such a significant level that he's able to save his whole family. He forgives his whole family. He reconciles with his family. And he's able to save all of Egypt. Put your trust in the Lord. I do not know what you're going through. I don't know the suffering that God has brought to your home. I don't know the suffering that God has brought to your health. I don't know the suffering that God has brought to your family, to your marriage, to your relationships. But I do know that we trust God and he's faithful. Amen? He's faithful that what he started in us, he's promising that he will use it and he will advance it. And he will even use it with selfish preachers. Thank God for that. Thank God for that. God will even use selfish preachers to accomplish his, his mission. Verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that, I rejoice. It's good to know that God will use even our selfishness to advance the gospel. That's how faithful God is to use us. That's how faithful God is to his mission, to his mission in the world. Out of selfish ambition, God can say, I'm going to use that for my glory. And I believe given the context, Paul's actually talking to Christians. There's a debate that goes back and forth about who Paul's talking to, but given the context, I think Paul's talking to Christians that are unfaithfully proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And honestly, this is every pastor I know struggles with this one thing. So this was comforting for me to read. There's, so, there's a war that rages in each one of us, is there not? Trying to be faithful and trying to have our whole lives centered on Jesus. And then when you stand up in this moment, sometimes you'll see me, I'm like raising my hands and praising God only because I want so badly to believe the words on the screen. 
that my whole life is for him. And when I stand up here in this moment, you're trying so hard to believe it, but honestly, it gets muddled up, right? It gets muddled up for each one of us. But God promises that no matter how messy it is in your selfishness, we're striving to center our whole lives on Jesus. God says, I'm going to use you. I promise. I'm faithful. What I started, I'm going to bring to completion, and I'm going to use it. God doesn't waste it. Let me summarize where we've come through in these 18 verses. First is Paul is a slave to Jesus, and this sets the tone for the whole letter. Second, he's in love with the church, and he's thankful for them. So again, there's a deep connection to this local church. Third is he is assured that Jesus is the one who has saved, is saving, and will save. All of it comes back to Jesus. He is committed to equipping the church to be faithful. And lastly, he cares only for the gospel and its, advance, and its advancement. Honestly, you read through this and you think, is this even attainable? This sort of faithfulness, this sort of life? It almost gets overwhelming, right? Or some of you, if you're not a Christian, you say, this is crazy. Who's in prison thanking God for their suffering, thanking God for their chains? And there's only one way that Paul was able to get there, to have a life that is so devoted to the church and so devoted to the, faith, to the advancement of the gospel, and that is by way of the gospel. Paul is reenacting the gospel story because he's been gripped by the gospel story. He is in love with Jesus Christ. And that's the only thing for him and the only thing for each one of us that'll move us forward in our lives and keep us faithful. As I said before, everything hinges on this messianic text in chapter 2. Early on as a believer, I memorized this text. And really, it was some of the most formative years of my life. And if there's one text, honestly, Frank devoted a lot of time to studying the book of Philippians. Frank translated the whole book of Philippians into Greek, and it's going to be great for him to walk through. But there's a reason for that is because this book in your formation is so important. And this one messianic poem is so important. I'm going to try to do the best I can in recollecting it and reciting it back to you. And what I'm going to do, this is the gospel. What I'm going to do, I'm going to read through it very slowly. I just want us to meditate on it because this is what got Paul to the place where he was. Without this, the rest of the book of Philippians makes no sense, okay? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to exploit, but made himself nothing. Being born in human likeness, I believe, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow 
in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Can I get an amen? amen. That is good news. <laughs> that is good news. Do you want to love your neighbor? You want to love the church? You want to be grateful? You want to be joyful? You want to actually advance the gospel? Then meditate on that text. Get it into your bones and live it every single day. Fight to have that mind amongst yourself and amongst ourselves. And from that, we, we move to loving our neighbor. From the gospel, we come to Jesus. He fills us up, and then he sends us out. And almost every commentator that I read said that Philippians is a book of how to be the people of God before a watching world. How to be the people of God before a watching world. So how are we supposed to be the people of God? We joyfully sacrifice for our brothers and sisters, or as Ricardo Stewart said at Redemption Tempe, these are missional friendships. It's fellowship, it's friendship with brothers and sisters, but there's a missional dimension to it. We lay down our lives for one another, and we seek to advance the gospel side by side with one another. And Paul, as I said once again, Paul is calling the church to be faithful in continued faithfulness. The church of Philippi is already doing this. They're already living into this reality of who they are in Jesus. But Paul's saying, you have to go deeper. And that's what I'd say to each one of you. That's what I call us to. I know so many of you are living this out. You're striving to have this mind among yourselves and serve and lay down your life, but we have to keep going. It's a call to continue to move forward. I think of Oscar Romero, who lived this out. Oscar Romero was the Archbishop of San Salvador, which is the capital of El Salvador. And he was the Archbishop in the 20th century. Um, I recognize there's some Catholic challenges in that, but listening to his sermons and then also looking at his life, I do believe that this is a devoted disciple of Jesus Christ. And this isn't the example. God calls us to faithfulness in all different areas of life, but this is one example. When he was actually appointed Archbishop, the poor church was nervous because they didn't think he was going to remember them and they didn't think he was going to care for them. But soon after he was appointed archbishop, um, a priest was murdered that was one of his close friends and five other priests were murdered in San Salvador because of a corrupt government. And Oscar Romero knew that he had to stand on behalf of the poor church, that he and his position had to stand on behalf of them, speak out against a corrupt government. There was actually one moment where he shut down mass across the entire city and he called everybody to come to him and listen to him preach that day. So everybody came to him in San, in, in San Salvador and listened to him preach and he proclaimed the gospel and he called the government. He demanded, he commanded the government to stop hurting these poor brothers and sisters and he lost his life. A few weeks later, he was shot and he was killed. Let me read you this quote. Let us not tire of preaching love. It is the force that will overcome the world. Let us not tire of preaching love. Though we see the waves of violence succeed in drowning the fire of Christian love, love must win out. It is the only thing that can. Like Oscar Romero, like the Apostle Paul, and you'll get into these stories later on, like Timothy, like Epaphroditus, like Jesus. 
we are called to joyfully lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters every single day, following in the way of Jesus. But this is hard work. It's not cupcakes and muffins, which is why we long for the day of the Lord. We have a future joy, which is where I want to end. We have a future joy that awaits us. You know, joy is used 16 times and is central to this letter. Paul rejoices, but he rejoices in something that he doesn't quite have yet. There's a reality that he wants to be a part of, but he knows it's not only just a present reality, but there's more to come. It's, it's a future reality that he longs for. Hebrews 12.2 says this, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him has endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, God may call you into a life of love that will lead to sacrifice and it will lead to suffering. That's what God calls us to. But we have no way to resurrect ourselves. God calls us to live cruciformed lives that reenact the story of the gospel. But just like the Apostle Paul, each one of us here, as we're living that life out, we are longing for resurrection. Even though we, we, we experience it today, but we're longing for the day of the Lord. For when Jesus comes back and makes everything new. When Jesus resurrects us in fullness, we see him face to face and we are with him. Pray with me now and let's long for that day together. God, we recognize that the loving our neighbor and a call to service and sacrifice is not easy. God, I pray that we would have this mind among ourselves, which is only ours in Christ. God, fill us with the gospel. May we believe in our bones that it's all we have to cling to is to Jesus. God, I want you to come again. Lord Jesus, we long for the day of the Lord when you appear, when we are resurrected in fullness, new bodies, new minds. We won't fight sin anymore. We won't fight evil anymore. God, we will be made whole. Come, Lord Jesus, and heal us. In the name of Jesus, amen.